what's going on everyone thank you for joining us for another episode of our podcast i'm les and i'm mo and this is the les and mo show what is up everyone welcome to episode 15 We wanted to thank you guys so much for your patience this season as we have been so busy in our personal lives that we have not had as much time as normal to dedicate to the podcast, so we've missed a couple weeks, but we really appreciate your support and understanding. Um, It means a lot to us just because you guys are just, you just have our backs, and we really appreciate that. Um, We are back on track now, and we expect to be posting weekly again. And speaking of posting weekly, we've actually made a change. And instead of posting our episodes on Thursdays at noon, we are now going to be posting them on Sundays at noon. This works a little bit better for us, and we hope it works for you too. If not, you can always stream us anytime on your favorite streaming sites. And don't forget to follow us on social media so you can stay up to date with all of our announcements and you can even sometimes get some sneak peeks into what the show is going to be about. So all that being said, we are going to be covering a really crazy case today, guys, and it's got a lot of heavy subject matter in it. So just be advised of that now. It's not as bad as some of the other episodes we've covered, but it's still pretty dark, so... Yeah, this story is absolutely dark and evil, and uh, we're just going to jump into the details right away. So, the setting of the story is in St. Louis, Missouri, and what you need to know is that there used to be a bridge that spanned across the Mississippi River between the border of Missouri and Illinois, and the bulk of today's story will take place on this bridge, and we'll get into more details later on. So two sisters, Julie and Robin Carey, they were from Spanish Lake, Missouri, a suburb outside of St. Louis. They were both really close in age. Julie was 20 and Robin was 19. They were known to be anti-racism activists who wanted to change the world. They were strong in their beliefs and had no problem standing for what they believed in. Julie was so passionate about her beliefs that she turned to poetry as an outlet for her feelings. She spray painted a poem she had written on a closed down bridge called the chain of rocks bridge in St. Louis. The title of the poem was Do the Right Thing, and it was inspired by a Spike Lee movie. The poem goes as follows. United we stand, divided we fall. It's not a white or black thing. We as a generation have got to take a stand. Unite as one. We've got to stop killing one another. You don't have to be white or black to feel prejudice, to fall in love, experience pain, create life, to kill, to die you just have to be human do the right thing this was just one of many poems that she had written but it seemed to have the most meaning to her as she had only chosen this one to share to the world julie and robin had gone with their friend holly to the bridge to spray paint it together and it's reported that the painting spanned 20 meters long they finished the graffiti with a peace symbol and julie's nickname Jules. So clearly they were very open about their beliefs and their feelings and where they stood on things. Julie especially, I mean, for her to write a poem and then spray paint it on a bridge and be so open about it, I obviously they, you know, really stood by what they believed and I think that's really awesome, especially for the time. I mean, Things were rocky in and the St. early Louis 90s. Too. St. Yeah. Louis is rough. Yes, and you know, it, there's always been a divide between people, but Julie was really in tune to that, and she really used poetry as an outlet to say how she felt. And a couple months later, the sisters would be visited by their family from Maryland, who was taking a trip to Missouri for spring break. So Julie and Robin's uncle Gene their Aunt Kay, and their cousins Janine and Tom were the ones to visit. Robin and Julie were excited to see their family, and they happily hung out with their cousins because they were close in age to them. Thomas, he was 19, and Janine, she was 16, so they were all pretty close in age. But Thomas, he was a 19-year-old who was a firefighter, and he proudly carried his badge with him everywhere he went. And he was sure to take it with him on his family trips to St. Louis. So Janine, you know, she was a 16-year-old high school student at the time. But 
Thomas's dad, he was also a firefighter too. So he was kind of following in his dad's footsteps. Their visit to St. Louis was a really great one and everyone was super happy to catch up and spend time together until the night of April 4th when Julie, Robin, their friend Holly, Holly's date who was a Marine and their cousin Thomas decided to go to the Chain of Rocks Bridge so Julie could show them the poems she and her friends had spray painted there just months before. That same night in Winsville, Missouri, two men by the names of Marlon Gray and Reginald Clemens, who were in their 20s, and two teens named Antonio Richardson and Daniel Winfrey, who were 16 and 15 at the time, they were all at a party and this party was winding down. So Gray decided that he didn't want to end the night since it was only 11 o'clock. He told the others that he wanted to go to the chain of Rocks Bridge to party and they all agreed to go along. They took off from the party where um, they had been and they took their party favors that were left over with them to the bridge. When Julie Robin, Tom, Holly, and her date made it to the bridge, they found out that it was guarded by this fence, but Julie, she knew how to get through an opening that they had found months before. And at this point, Holly's date, the Marine, decided he didn't want to go. So he didn't want to get caught trespassing while he was a Marine because he would get in trouble. So he and Holly decided to turn back and leave. The three cousins decided that they would go ahead anyways and everything was going well with their adventure when Julie heard quiet voices approaching them. The three retreated into the shadows as the voices got closer and closer. Eventually, four men would come into the light and Julie took a sigh of relief because they were four young people just like them. Wow. I um, can't believe just like the instincts mm -hmm. on some of them, just like the feeling that they were getting like the the boyfriend the marine that uh, yeah. you know it's not a good idea let's just go back well he you know was thinking strictly because he didn't want to get in trouble yeah. as a marine you know he he was like ah, eh, like it's just too risky for me and holly of course like i i would do the same thing for you too i'd no, be like yeah. yeah yeah we gotta go you know i'm not gonna just ditch you but yeah i mean and then to hear voices so they're like we better hide they did but you know, when you see a group of people probably close to your age, they're not cops. You're just like, oh, okay, like there's other people out here. So no big yeah. deal. They're probably partying and hanging out like we are. And there's a there's a big age group, uh, age difference, sorry, between the four friends here. Yeah. Because two of them are in their 20s and the other two are 15. Like what? Yeah, 15 and 16. Like what are you doing hanging out with 20-year-olds? Like I, I hung out with a wrong crowd too when I was younger but I don't ever recall hanging out with like people who were five years older than me like that just never happened my parents wouldn't let that happen either you know yeah but. for sure so the three cousins left the shadows and met with the four men who were Gray Clemens Richardson and Winfrey the same four men who were attending the party in Wentzville the groups talked smoked cigarettes and Julie would even show them her poem Gray then would show them how you could jump over the side of the bridge and land on the platform below. He told them they were going down there to party and asked the three to join them. The cousins declined the invitation and eventually the two parties would separate. The cousins continued on their way across the bridge towards the Illinois side of the river while the group of four continued onto the lower platform of the bridge. Clemens would tell the cousins he had lost a flashlight on his way to that point of the bridge and asked them to return it if they had found it. The cousins got out of sight of the men and talked about how they weren't going to go back even if they did find the flashlight, and how the encounter was really weird. When the cousins were almost to the end of the bridge, they spotted people down by the banks of the river having a bonfire. They decided to stop and take in the scenery before leaving. For the next 20 to 30 minutes, they would enjoy the time drinking and smoking when again, they heard low voices coming in their direction. This time, the group was more scared because they were convinced the cops were really there to bust them for trespassing. They all braced for the worst, but who the voices belonged to would emerge from the shadows and the cousins saw that it was the same group of men from before. They were still uneasy, but again, they took a sigh of relief because it wasn't the cops. So this is twice now that the same group of men have approached them on this bridge and they already got a weird feeling about it the first time. So can you imagine how they're feeling 
the second time, like, sure, it's a sigh of relief because it's not the cops, but then you're seeing these same group of men that you saw before and you're just like, eh, like, you know, you really got to trust your instincts. Like, even though you might be with a group of people, like you never know what's going to happen and you get these instincts for a reason. So you got to trust them. Yeah. So before the um, cousins and the group of men or after the cousins and the group of men separated, the group of men, so Greg, Clemens, Richardson, and Winfrey would go back to the vehicle they'd come in. And they were smoking pot and drinking when one of them said to the group that they wanted to go back and rob them. So Gray was the first one to respond and stated, I feel like hurting somebody while he rubbed his hands together. So he was forming a plot for sure. Gray reached into his pocket and grabbed four condoms, making sure each one of each of them got one. Winfrey, he was hesitant because he knew what Gray was thinking, but Gray shot him a look that intimidated him so bad that he took it anyways and the four proceeded back to the bridge. As the groups met for a second time, they would all stand around talking and watching the same bonfire the cousins had seen minutes before, and Richardson even yelled down to the campers and exchanged pleasantries with them. All seven of them would eventually start walking back towards the Missouri side of the bridge where they had all parked. There wasn't really much to fear as they began to walk, but by the time the cousins reached the halfway point of the bridge, their concerns would grow as they thought the guys may be wanting to steal their car when they got back to the banks. Julie would ask Thomas what he thought they should do, and he said he didn't know that they should just stay alert. Julie relayed this message to Robin, and Robin looked at Julie with this wide, terrified eyes, and that's when Gray noticed they could sense danger. So Gray, he sprang into action, and he grabbed Tom by his shoulders. He told Tom to step aside because he needed to talk to him about something. He pulled him to the side by his arm and knocked him to the ground so that his face was in the concrete. Tom watched as Julie and Robin were grabbed and held down by the three other men. As he watched in horror, he felt a foot come down on the back of his neck, pushing his face into the gravel on the road, and he heard the voice of Gray tell him to stay and not move or he'd be shot. Wow, that escalated. Yeah, this is... Really quickly. Yeah, absolutely horrible. So, you know, these these four guys obviously are up to no good, formed a plan to go hurt these people, and took that plan into action, like... I mean, that's just so terrible. terrible. You know, it sounds like they were having a good good night, like 20-year-olds, you know, the cousins. Yeah. And, you know, I've had nights like that where we've been at the beach and, you know, bonfire, whatever. Sure. And just all of a sudden it takes a quick turn like that with some, yeah. some strangers. That's absolutely terrible. Well, you never know other people's true intentions. They And this is what happens with murderers, serial killers all the time. Most of them come off as charismatic, as charming, as likable and nice. And they will be nice right up to your face to kind of gain your trust and kind of feel you out. And if they sense any weakness or any way that they can overpower you, they will take advantage of that. And these, these four are a prime example of that. They are predators who knew what they were doing, found their victims, and attacked. And real POSs. Yeah, honestly. I wonder if they um, had any sort of record because that was like really impulse how they how the story kind of goes. Just yeah. like kind of. Well, they they did. There were some issues that some of them had, and they, it wasn't anything like this. Two older guys. Yeah, and I, even one of the younger guys, he had some issues too, but it was nothing as severe as this. You know, like yeah. they weren't in and out of jail. They didn't have these horrible stories before this point. It, it is like this was just kind of a random. They, they were taking an opportunity randomly. Yeah. So innocent people. Yeah. Yeah. So, while Tom was told to stay still or he'd be shot, Julie and Robin were taken down to the lower level of the bridge. Tom could hear them yelling and pleading for the men not to hurt them, but eventually the pleading would turn into screams of pain and terror. One by one, the four men would take turns essaying the girls, while one man would stay on the upper level guarding Tom. 
When it was Winfrey's turn to watch Tom, he would rob Tom of the little money that he had. As Tom laid there, he felt every emotion one could feel in that situation. He contemplated fighting back, and he contemplated his fate, all while listening to the horrible screams of his cousins coming from below. Eventually, the girls would grow quiet and the four men would emerge from the lower level. They began to kick Tom and argue about what to do with him and who they should kill first. Tom was taken down to the lower level eventually and reunited with Julie and Robin who were alive, but laying on the ground naked and lifeless. After more arguing about what to do with the victims, the man demanded the three go to the edge of the bridge. The cousins stood there, arm in arm, leaning on each other for support. Upon seeing this, Richardson screamed at them to separate, and as soon as they did, Julie was pushed off the bridge and into the water below. Robin watched in disbelief as Tom let out a gasp. Suddenly, Robin was also pushed in, and Tom was left shocked and alone. Richardson would then approach Tom and say, jump, or, but before he could even finish, Tom jumped into the river. Wow. Can you? That's I just scary. can't. Yeah. That, I just think about this situation, and if I were in it, like, I, I just, it's terrible. Like, I can't even fathom the fear, the anguish, the everything, all the emotions that you would feel in that moment, and then to see your sister pushed, then your cousins pushed, like, it just, yeah. and then you're left in a situation where you have to jump or think you're going to be shot. Like, yeah. What? And it just kind of brings you back to, like, what if the five of them were still together, like Holly and the, the Marine boyfriend? Would it yeah. have been different? Like, would they have never even approached them at, at the second time? Yeah. And that's just, you know. It's always strength in numbers, you know. And you got, if, if they would have stayed, you have a group of five and a group of four. You would have two men and two, three I'm sorry, girls. Two, two men, three women, and four guys. I don't know if it would have gone any differently. We don't know that, but yeah, I'm sure Holly and her boyfriend felt absolutely horrible too. It's sad though, man. It is. And you know, not everyone is one to like fight back and yeah. it's just, it's not like their fault. It's just no. so sad that they're in a position like this where you can't really think clearly. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to touch on really quick is when Winfrey was robbing Tom on the bridge, Winfrey found Tom's firefighter badge and automatically assumed that Tom was a cop. And Tom had to like clear it up really quick. No, I'm not a cop, I'm a firefighter. And that, I guess, settled Winfrey's nerves. So he stole the badge too. And um, it's important for later in the story, but I just wanted to point that out because I had forgot about that from the research. But um, Richardson, Winfrey, Gray, and Clemens were completely happy with themselves and would oh talk gosh. about the adrenaline rush that they'd felt from what they had done. They then ran across the bridge back to their vehicles and decided to resume their night on the Illinois side of the river in Alton, Illinois, of course. And this is where they would um, watch the river and the bridge and they would finish off like the joints and the alcohol that they had left. They even discussed the chances of the cousin reaching the banks and Clemens stated they'll never make it to the banks. The guilt of what they had done started to get to Winfrey. His hands were shaky and he kept repeating to the group, I'm not in this, I'm not in this, over and over again as the four rode around smoking cigarettes and continued their night. It was a chilly night that night so the water was frigid and it was especially rough at this point of the river because there's a long line of like boulders that are huge and they're kind of like right beneath the surface of the water and this is where the bridge gets its name the chain of rocks because the water is so full of quick moving debris and these boulders and large logs and sticks it's just always churning and it's extremely murky and muddy in there so in the river though there was a fight for survival still going on the three cousins were alive, or at least that's what Tom thought. 
Tom, he spotted what he thought was Robin floating in the water first, but he quickly, unfortunately, lost sight of her, and he contemplated, well, was that really her, or was that a log? He didn't know, but Tom did spot Julie next, and the two... They battled it out in the current for a really long time trying to get to each other. Julie was trying her absolute hardest, but was struggling to stay afloat. She yelled to Tom that she was drowning and he could tell she was close to giving up. Tom yelled for her to keep swimming, keep swimming over and over and he was losing the battle with exhaustion himself. So what he would do is he would flip over to his back to float and he just kind of started doing the like backstroke in the direction he thought Julie was in. As the current was lifting him up, he could kind of pop his head up and scan around for Julie and see where she was at. And he saw her and they were getting closer and closer to each other. And he just yelled to her, you know, keep swimming. He saw how fatigued she was, but with one last like rush of energy, she threw herself through the water to Tom and she actually got her arms around his neck. But as soon as they connected, they just started sinking into the river. And so Tom, as they're underwater, gets her arms off of his neck and uses his other arm to push her up above the water and he gets her up above the water to the surface and then he got up to the surface as well but when he did emerge they were farther apart now and they were trying really hard again to swim towards each other but it just they they never ended up getting back together on this point so um he lost track of her and they unfortunately never made contact again so that's insane yeah. i mean what a i mean they were literally fighting for their life yes and these two cousins you know how oh, how heartbreaking and horrific and defeating would it be you know to make contact and you're like oh my god okay we're back together again at least there's that let's find um let's find our other cousin and let's get her robin yeah. yeah thank you let's find robin and get her together with us so we can try to get out of the situation under the circumstances, though, you're swept apart again by this current. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you that this part of the river is so violent. Like, it's a miracle that they even made it into the water alive. Like, it is unreal that that's what happened. They jumped off this huge bridge and then they're fighting for their lives still. Just horrendous, you know? So at this point... Tom was hysterical and he was close to giving up into the circumstances and his life flashed in front of his eyes and when this happened it would inspire him to not give up but to keep fighting. Tom decided at that point that he needed to get to the bank of the river. He paddled as hard as he could against the stream but he wasn't getting much closer. After about an hour of being in the water Tom finally made it onto the banks of the Missouri side of the river. In shock, Tom laid down in the mud and passed out from exhaustion. Shortly after, he woke up and jumped into action to find help for his cousins. Tom took off into the woods and would eventually make it to a road. This was the same road that led to the entrance of the bridge. Covered in mud and soaking wet, Tom tried to flag down several cars, but none of them would stop because they were afraid of how he looked. Eventually, Tom saw a truck coming and ran into the middle of the road, flailing his arms around and closing his eyes, thinking that he may get hit. The truck stopped, and Tom ran into the driver's side. The trucker rolled down his window in disbelief. Tom would then tell him what happened, and the trucker told him to wait there so he could go get police. Tom was really paranoid at this point, so he found a hiding spot to wait for the authorities. He waited for what felt like an eternity until he saw another truck coming down the road. He stopped this trucker and explained to him what happened. This time, the driver offered to take Tom to the police, but Tom declined and explained that he was waiting for the police because the other truck driver was going to send them to this location. The trucker understood and told Tom that he would also go get the nearest police and alert them. So we're finally making some headway towards getting some help yeah so he's out of the water now he's passed out because obviously you're so tired and then 
you get like a glimpse of hope because you're able to stop these these truckers but you don't really know what they're gonna do if they're really gonna report it or not or if they're just gonna drive off and that be that but um he's made it this far so Finally, around like 2 a.m., police officers Sam Brooks and Don Sanders would arrive on the scene and would be met by Tom coming out of his hiding spot. He was visibly shaken, covered in mud, and his hands were still pruned from being in the water for so long. Tom was even limping as the officers walked him to the car to put him in the back seat with the heat on high to try to warm him up. But the officers, they were in disbelief and called for backup because they wanted to try to find these two girls. Tom, Julie, and Robin's parents were all awoken by police around 5 o'clock that morning. They were only told that there was an incident at the Chain of Rocks Bridge that involved their children and they needed to go to the scene ASAP. The parents clearly had questions, but the officers who alerted them wouldn't be able to answer anything. So the parents left immediately for the bridge. Tom's parents, Jean and Kay Cummins, were the first to arrive. They went to the highest ranking official that was there and asked what was going on. The officer didn't answer and started bombarding them with questions. He would ask if Jean had a fireman's badge and if it looked like his son's. He would then ask to see the badge and would have a crime scene investigator take pictures of it. He would also brandish a set of keys and ask who they belonged to. Kay would reply that they were Robin's and Robin's car was the one parked nearby. Being helpful but fed up with the questions, Gene demanded to know where his son was. The officer finally told the parents that he was safe with officers on the bridge just a mile or two away. The Cummins parents were so relieved, but when asking about Julie and Robin, they were met with the heartache when the officer explained that the three were pushed from a bridge and Julie and Robin hadn't been found yet. An ambulance carrying Tom approached the area his parents were in and they were finally reunited with their son. It took Tom minutes to tell the story and his parents were only able to get a, the smallest amount of details out of him. He was able to tell them everything they needed to know to understand how serious the situation was, though. Oh, it's um, getting crazy. Like, the, I just can't deal with the cops. So, like, bro, just yeah, they just stop asking questions. I get you have to do that, but there's a time for that. You have frantic parents who just want to know what's going on with the kids and all you're doing is asking them questions about your firefighter's badge and stuff like that like, <laughs> why does that matter come on because i guess they had found tom's and they wanted to make sure that it was like jeans because i'm pretty sure they worked in the same firehouse yeah but yeah like enough with the questions and let me just point out too that these questions like this officer was such a tool to these parents in this situation because he was like they were asking him questions he wasn't telling them and then he was just asking them questions repeatedly expecting these answers but he wasn't giving them out so yeah his dad you know got pissed and was like stop asking us questions tell us where the hell our son is and what is going on you know yeah but, but I guess they all have a process and, yeah. you know, we don't know what the process was like back in the day. And yeah. This is uh, the Missouri, St. Louis police, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so soon after Julie and Robin's mother, Gina arrived and she was able to spot Kay first. She ran over to Kay frantically and asked her questions that Kay wasn't able to answer. Gina couldn't locate her daughters in the crowd and upon asking officers of their whereabouts, they just responded that they weren't accounted for yet. When Gina spotted Tom in the ambulance, she asked his parents if she could talk to him alone. They agreed, and she and Tom sat in the ambulance in private. They talked for a while before Gina exited the vehicle and slowly walked past Tom's parents as if she was completely emotionless. She wasn't crying and wasn't angry. She was just quiet and pale, and she walked straight to her car, and she left to go get clothes, dry clothes for her daughters in case they were found in the river. After the reunion, Tom was asked to go back to the bridge to show the police exactly what had happened and where. Tom's dad demanded that he go with them, and the officers agreed. 
On the bridge, Tom would retell the story and map out everything. The police then started investigating the scene. Tom and his father were taken back to where they had met. Kay was still awaiting their return, so they all reunite again. Kay suggested that Tom should leave and go get freshened up, but Tom said he'd like to stay and help the police as much as possible. Before they could make a final decision, the police informed them that Tom would have to come down to the station for questioning. At this point, Tom had been up for over 20 hours and was exhausted. He was taken into an interrogation room at the station, and the police refused to let Gene into the room with his son. The officers let Tom into a room and told him that they would be back to begin shortly. Tom waited for a while, and he actually fell asleep. The officers would come back about 16 minutes later, and he was questioned about his relationship with, with Julie and asked Tom if he had ever done anything sexual with her or Robin. Tom stated no. Then they asked him if he had done anything to the girls that night, and Tom again replied no. When asked about the men on the bridge, Tom couldn't remember their names, but knew that one of them was from Wentzville. The questioning went on for about an hour and a half. The two police officers finished their questioning and told Tom to wait there for a few minutes while they talked to their chief about letting him leave. Tom waited and fell asleep again. Eventually, the door opened and Tom was startled again from the door slamming. Two new detectives had entered the room and started explaining to Tom that the previous detectives had been relieved of their shift and now that they would be conducting the next round of questioning. At this time, it was about 11.45 a.m., and Tom was physically and emotionally drained out, and he, he continued to cooperate with them. He was asked to provide hair, hair, um, hair samples, blood, saliva, and um, the police told him it was, to rule, it was to rule him out as a suspect. And Tom obviously agreed. He was also asked the same questions as before and corroborated them all for a second time. Eventually, the police stated that they wanted Tom to stick around and help them create sketches of the men who were, who were the suspects. Annoyed by all the questioning, thinking Tom wasn't helping enough, he was excited to do the, uh, the composite sketches because he thought that they would help make an impact on the case. So you have this kid who's already gone through so much, and now the police are dicking him around. Like, they wouldn't let him go and change and freshen up. And Tom, even if they would have, I'm pretty sure Tom was just like, look, I want to help get this taken care of. We got to catch these guys. Like, we got to find Julian Robin. But they wouldn't even let him leave, you know. And his dad actually had some extra clothes of his in their car. So he gave Tom these clothes to put on instead of the wet clothes but these clothes were so big and baggy on Tom so that's literally the only thing he had up until this point to like refresh himself and like try to get into something clean you know yeah and uh it's basically a tactic I mean obviously the police think that he's involved somehow and that's why they're just draining him out which would probably lead to something that they want yes so as these hair samples were taken, Tom's dad was actually allowed into the interrogation room. There he and his son sat and um, they were given lunch while a detective stayed in the room and they were eating. The detective suggested that they do a polygraph on Tom after he was finished eating. His father, Gene, was hesitant about doing so um, since his son was so exhausted, but the detectives argued their case and Gene, he was still hesitant, but was advised by Tom that he felt comfortable doing the test and that he had nothing to hide. So Tom was separated from his father once again so they could conduct this polygraph test. Tom was asked many of the same questions he was asked before, but he was asked this time if he murdered his cousins. Tom, of course, answered no, but Tom, he was so exhausted that he started to slip in and out of sleep and consciousness while this test was going on. So the test, it didn't stop. And the person who was conducting the test, he just continued on. Eventually, the, te uh, the detective who was conducting this test told Tom, and this is a quote, we have a real fucking problem here. 
he would get in Tom's face and demand he confess to the murders, telling Tom, I'm going to get the truth out of you, so you might as well just confess. Tom was shocked at what was happening and pleaded with the detective that he was innocent, but the detective told him that he was a scumbag and knew what he had done. Then he proceeded to tell Tom that, we're going to do the interview again, and this time you're going to tell me the fucking truth. It was going terribly the second time around, and Tom was losing his fight with exhaustion again. He was relieved when the former interrogators finally came in and the questioning was wrapped up. This time, a new detective greeted him and took Tom back downstairs to the interrogation room where he had been before. While Tom had been polygraphed, his father, Gene, was also having intense conversations with police. He was told that there was no way that Tom could have survived the 90-foot drop from the bridge, that if he did, the current alone that was at five knots and um, it basically should have overpowered him. The police offered um, other scenarios and stated they think Tom was either knocked unconscious and doesn't know what happened or that he escaped and was trying to cover up what he did um, and he didn't, you know, go back to help the girls. Either way, Gene knew that there was more than suspicion of Tom. They asked Gene to talk to Tom to get the truth from him regarding the case. Gene eventually agreed, thinking to himself that he was going to prove his son's innocence to them. Back in the interrogation room, detectives were starting in on Tom again. They forcefully told him they knew he committed the crimes and just to confess already. Tom, he stuck by his story the whole time. The sergeant eventually came in and told Tom, we have two of the men here that you say attacked you. You see that mirror over there? It's not really a mirror. It's really a two-way window and those two men who are here can see you. They've told us a completely different story than what you have, and you need to go to the mirror and tell them what you did. We can protect you here, but if we let you go, we cannot guarantee your safety when you leave. We know you're a sick individual, and what, and they do too. You have to tell us what you did right now. Tom immediately perked up with fear as it took over him. He asked, you guys have two of them? You can't let them go. If you've got them, you just can't let them go. Wow. Yes. Dude, th- these tactics that they're pulling on this. Well, Tom's 20, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he's still like, but he's an adult, like a young adult. But that's crazy, man. Yeah. And they've, they've had him up for over 36 hours at this point. The kid's been in a freaking river fighting for his life previous to that. You know yeah. he's not in he's any... barely conscious, yeah. Yeah, he's not in any capacity to be answering questions, to be interrogated, to be polygraphed. Like, it's it's common knowledge that if you do a polygraph test while you're tired, nine times out of ten, it's it, like, skews the results. So it doesn't... It's not accurate. And most of the time, polygraph tests aren't accurate anyways. So this is all bullshit, if you ask me, like, what's going on? You know, these cops are just doing their damnedest to just get a confession, you know? Yeah. Eventually, after Tom denied the allegations, the head detective made one last allegation towards Tom and about what happened. He told Tom that he thought Tom had gone there that night to have sex with Julie and wasn't expecting Robin to be there. But he made his move anyways and made Robin sit by and watch threatening her they went on to say at some point there was an altercation and julie was accidentally pushed in causing robin to jump after her as tom continued to deny these statements the detective got more and more frustrated and slammed his hands down on the table screaming at tom that he was tired of him and that he was a sick pervert eventually gene was escorted into the room uh, his son was in and he started you know, he started with his son and told him that he knew he had lied over silly things in the past when he was young, but he really saw him grow into a good young man, and he has to tell him what happened. Tom was hysterical again at this point and screamed, asking why no one believed him, that he really had fallen and had survived somehow. Tom was hurt deeply by his father's questioning, even more so than the detectives, 
so Tom shut down. He didn't care what happened to him next. The night of the assault was so painful, but to have his own father not believe him was disappointing. So he gave up and gave in when the detectives removed his father from the room and started the interrogation again. When the officers left Tom with the scenario he'd stated before, saying Tom had essayed Julie and forced Robin to watch, Julie then struggled and was accidentally pushed off the bridge. Then Robin jumped in to help her. Defeated, Tom replied with, You know what? You're going to believe whatever the hell you want. Then fine. Sure, why not? That's what happened. Believing they finally got the confession, but not getting it on tape, Tom thought to himself, I've, I haven't been recorded and I haven't signed anything like a confession or a statement. He was, extre he was extremely relieved to just be done with the questioning. He was then taken out of the room again by another officer who was escorting him out to a dimly lit hallway. When Tom asked where they were going, the officer replied to video record your statement. He was actually polite when replying to Tom, and Tom was confused as to why their mood had changed, like a confession made him human again. And that's what they were looking for, a confession. Yeah, that's what they wanted the whole time. Like, <clears throat> I feel like... Um... In a lot of cases of the past, they have literally just, you know, pushed people to their limits just to get a confession so that they can tell the community, oh, the killer's off the streets and behind bars and, you know, we're, the case is closed, no worries here. And they swept a lot of information and stuff under the rug. They didn't believe victims when they should have, turned victims into suspects, suspects into convicts, like... I, I feel like that went on a lot back in the day, so this doesn't really surprise me too much. It's disgusting, but not a big surprise there. Meanwhile, as all this was going on, Kay and her sisters were busy planning on getting a legal team for Tom after realizing how bad it was that he was still at the station and after Jean had let Kay know just how badly the polygraph had gone. The lawyer's name was Frank Fabry, and he was a criminal defense lawyer. When Kay relayed all the details to Fabry, he was shocked to find out that Tom had been questioned all day long at the police station, so she inst he instructed Kay to call Jean ASAP and tell Jean to tell the front desk sergeant that this has gone on long enough and that it was time to go home and for Gene to write down exactly what the sergeant said back to him. Then he wanted Kay to call back and tell him all, of, all that had gone on. Kay hung up with Fabry and called Gene. When Gene did as instructed, he was told by the desk sergeant that you can go whenever you'd like, but Tom isn't going anywhere. Kay then relayed the message to the lawyer who advised her to call her husband back and tell the desk sergeant that you have retained a lawyer for Tom and he is on his way to the station, so all questioning and procedures needed to be stopped immediately. Fabri also told Kay what to expect next and that her son was to the point of exhaustion where he wouldn't be able to tell anyone what had happened at that point. He also advised that by getting a lawyer, the cops would be more eager and quicker to bring charges of second-degree murder against Tom. Again, Kay relayed all this to Jean, and Jean, as Jean was listening to Kay explain about bringing charges, two officers approached him and explained that they were, in fact, going to be charging his son. Fabry arrived and was taken to Tom, um, who at this point had been at the station for like 36 hours. Fabry introduced himself to Tom and assured him that his nightmare with the police was over. He then explained the bad news that the police were going to arrest Tom for the murders of his cousin. Fabry stayed with Tom a little while longer, explaining to him and his family that they actually believed and supported him. But the next step was for Tom to be taken into custody and he would spend at least the night in jail. Fabry stayed a little while longer reassuring Tom, but eventually it was time for him to go. Tom was taken to his cell afterwards. The nightmare with the cops wasn't over for Tom. He would experience multiple forms of harassment from different ones during the processing, sta yeah, during the processing stages and throughout the night in jail. They even once told him, good luck with the suicide. The next day, Tom was 
still unclean and caked in mud from two days before, was able to see his lawyer again. This time, the lawyer had more information and was able to tell Tom exactly what was coming next. He told Tom that they were about to start the fight for Tom's life. While Tom and Fabry were together discussing the op- their options, the police were busy trying to figure out how they would be able to keep Tom detained without a recorded confession and no solid evidence to corroborate their ideas of how the events unfolded. The detectives who'd been on the scene and who'd first questioned Tom were back involved and spoke with the other detectives who all agreed they had nothing. Oh my gosh. Yep. So Tom was released from jail and his family was all waiting to take him home. I just I just can't believe how I mean if they would have spent more time and resources on actually trying to find the killers who knows maybe they could have found the girls right away too. I no mean I don't shit. know, you know, just how much time and effort was spent on the wrong person. Yes. Almost 3 days. Yes, and I'm sure that there were like firefighters, first responders out there looking, looking out for there. The girls, I'm sure, yeah. But where the hell were you guys at on the bridge? Why were you not trying to collect evidence? There had to have been some kind of evidence left behind by Con- these four condoms guys. or whatever. You for know? sure, like where where were you at that night? Oh, I get it's dark. I get whatever, but still, like the day has come and gone two times. Then well, you still haven't found any evidence on the damn bridge. Maybe they did have other detectives that were on the scene, but I still don't like how. They just forced this upon this this guy. Yeah. You know, I mean, brutality. You know. And uh, it it just doesn't make sense. How I don't know what they get out of it. Maybe you're right. They get to calm the public down, knowing that the killer is off the street. But the reality is, the killer is not. And what if they're out doing more? You know, who yes, knows? Exactly. While Gene and his family all tried their best to help Tom overcome the horrendous endeavor the police were still on the hunt for the bodies the girls and the potential suspects tom had described as the investigation on the bridge continued there was a critical piece of evidence that was found the flashlight richardson had told the group of cousins about it was recovered on the bridge the flashlight had the initials of a firefighter scribbled on and the police were able to trace down the owner He would tell the police that the flashlight was stolen and they suspected their son's friend, Antonio Richardson, had been the one to take it. It wouldn't take them long to track down Tony. They then questioned him about the night of the attacks and Tony would confess to being there, carrying the flashlight and participating in the SA of of one of the sisters. He, He stated that he was forced to do so by a man by the name of Marlon Gray. He would also claim that Gray told the group that if they didn't participate in the attacks, that he would also harm them. Richardson would be taken to the bridge, and he would show the police what happened and where. All of which had corroborated with many of the details that Tom had provided. This pointed investigators in the right direction of the other three suspects, and Richardson was, you know, he gave their info right away, their names and everything. Police were then on the hunt for the other three and would capture them. Richardson and Winfrey would easily confess to their parts in the crime. And I mean, they were the younger ones, right? So, but it would take Clemens years to do the same. Marlon Gray, however, would maintain his innocence. Richardson's and Winfrey would both be sentenced to life behind bars, while Clemens and Gray would get the death penalty. Clemens would eventually get off the death penalty due to mishandling of his sentencing. But Gray would never, and he would eventually be executed by lethal injection in 2005, 14 years after the murders. The Cummins and the Carey families never really got over the horrific ordeal they had faced that night, but they wanted to share their story as a cautionary tale to anyone who would listen. They conducted interviews and wrote books, but it never helped take away the loss they had experienced. The Bridge of Sadness has since been torn down and the only remnants of what remains are the two structures that held the bridge together at the opening. A new bridge was built within a mile of the original that still stands today. There is a memorial to honor Julian Robin at the former entrance of the bridge on the Missouri side and it is all that remains of the girls to this day 
besides the memories held by their family and friends. So they actually did end up finding um, Julie's body, and it was uh, quite a few miles down the river, and it was discovered by a fisherman out there. So they recovered Julie, but unfortunately they were never able to find Robin. So just no closure for her, you know. Yeah. And you know this uh, this goes back to like some of our other episodes. Again, the Mississippi River and Alton that that area in general tragedy just shows up sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's so area. many things that have happened there. Um either on the Missouri side or Illinois side, just that river in general, just some crazy energy. Yeah, and I really do think that it can bring out the absolute worst in people it really can like well i mean think about it like everyone was enjoying the night yeah even the four guys and then all of a sudden something took over them and they're like oh we're gonna yeah. you know do this well and it's so sad too because this bridge before it was turned down or i'm torn sorry down. torn down um it was known as a place for people to go commit suicide so people oh had jumped gosh. off the bridge before so i'm not saying it's like haunted by that or anything and they were possessed to like or anything like that, but it was known as the bridge of like sadness and suffering. So, you know, this just plays into that even more, and it's so sad. Like, it's oh, sad so to sad. it's it's uh, the, you know the two girls, the um, sisters, they were also such good people. I mean, they were yeah. they were fighting for good things and yeah, justice, equality. And what's sad to me though is that you know Julie had shown these guys their poem, and she you know was so in tune for justice and you know yeah. good things and that didn't matter at all to these four guys it didn't matter at all that she was this this good kind-hearted loving person who just wanted equality for everyone it just that didn't matter you know and this is just such a sad and bizarre crazy story i i think that it says enough you know this this has been a heavy episode but thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening to the show remember that we are now dropping episodes on sundays at 12 p.m so we will see you then the more you know the less you fear so tune in next week right back here